All right, well, my parents got a new trampoline, Elijah excitedly exclaimed. I was in second grade and was excited. This was the first time being at my best friend's new home. And so I was like, man, well, let's go use it. I love trampolines. I, lo I was excited to kind of bounce off it and take flight, you know. And so we began searching and looking through, kind of opening up every bedroom area, like searching behind, opening the closet doors, uh, looking behind couches. Uh, but we couldn't find it. So I'm like, well, Eli, where is it? And he was like, well, I I'm not sure. And I'm like, well, how do you know it's there then if you don't know where it is? And he's like, well, he was convinced. He said that every night his parents would pack up the trampoline and put it away. It's like, all right, well, uh, if you've never seen it before, well, how do you know it exists? And he began to explain to me the geography of his new home, that his bedroom was downstairs, uh, his parents' master bedroom was directly above upstairs, uh, directly above him downstairs beneath it. So... <laughs> Sometimes at night, he said, they like to pull it out and bounce around on it. And, uh, <laughs> well, we were enchanted by this great mystery of the trampoline. <laughs> uh, we never found it. <laughs> but in the years to come, as we grew older, uh, we discovered that, yes, its secret was fun. And yes, it could take you to flight, right? But, <laughs> but even more so, there was a secret. That secret in the bedroom upstairs actually spoke to a great mystery of where we've come from and where we're going, about the character of the God who has created us and the destiny that he has planned for the future of our world. This is a sermon about the trampoline. <laughs> As Greg mentioned, we might get a little PG-13, so just if you've got young kids, just a heads up there. Uh, we do have room in, in the children's ministry. Uh, so if we can throw Ephesians 5, the verse here up on the screen. All right, Paul says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. All right, well, let's start. Paul talks about this as a profound mystery. This mystery is profound. So this is a great mystery. The phrase he actually uses here is mega mysterion. So it's a mega mystery. And what is this mega mystery? Well, the mega mystery is that this is about that, that the union of a husband and a wife becoming one flesh is about the mystery of the gospel of Christ and the church, that sex is about salvation. Uh, the title for the sermon this morning is Sex as Salvation. Turn to the person next to you, tell them this is about to get weird. <laughs> All right. Well, let's start with this phrase, one flesh. So Paul uh, talks about one flesh, and one flesh, the two becoming one flesh, it's the dominant Old Testament language and imagery for talking about sex, for bodily union, the two becoming one. And I think it's interesting that uh, the Old Testament, the Bible kind of emphasizes the bodily nature, kind of the physical nature of this union. So I think sometimes in our culture today, we tend to emphasize more kind of the internal versus the external aspects. So we'll talk about kind of finding our soulmate, right? Uh, or of our two hearts becoming one. Like you know, the Jerry Maguire, you complete me, right? There's a sense of our two hearts have become one. Uh, but the Bible is unabashedly physical. It kind of emphasizes and highlights the bodily 
nature of this union, that God has designed us in such a way that uh, we're able to come together in a union that can bring new life into the world. And so one flesh language is used to talk about the, the, this union and also the family line that could come from it. Now, this union, bodily union, is something beautiful and holy in God's eyes. Sometimes I think we have maybe lesser ways that we tend to think about it. So uh, there was a song that came out uh, a year or two ago, a recent song, a pop song, that kind of spoke of, of this union as like a monster with two heads, right? It's like it's a monstrosity. And that is not the biblical vision. The biblical vision is something more uh, like uh, the classic Postal Service song where such great heights where Ben Gibbard croons, I have to speculate that God himself did make us into corresponding shapes like puzzle pieces from the clay. There's something beautiful and intentional that God has designed for the ability to come together in union and bring new life into the world. All right, well, if, if that's the, the, the sex part, right, one flesh, then how does that point to Christ in the church? Well, the goal of salvation is union with Christ. The goal of our salvation is actually being united with the very life of God who has come for us together in Christ. And sometimes I think we've emphasized or made salvation primarily about other things. So some traditions might have made it more about, hey, it's ultimately it's all about going to heaven when you die. Or other traditions, salvation is all about kind of fixing everything here on earth. But in the New Testament, actually, the dominant image and language for salvation is union with Christ. This is the center around which everything else revolves and circulates. Everything's orchestrated around union with Christ. So the phrase, uh, Christ being in you, or you being in Christ, that phrase, uh, being in Christ, shows up 242 times in the New Testament. It's the dominant language for describing salvation. In 2 Corinthians 13.5, for example, Paul says, Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Romans 8.1 says, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, what does this mean? So this doesn't mean that uh, it's not something crude, like God wants to have sex with us, right? That's not what we're saying. Uh, but it is saying that there is a horizontal and a vertical, right? That on the horizontal level, sexual union on this horizontal level is designed to point us to the union that God desires with us on a vertical level. God has created, has embedded the symbol, the signpost, this kind of icon or window or lens that we can look through and get a glimpse of God's heartbeat for us in our world. That we were made for intimacy, for union, for the indwelling presence and power of God in us and with us as his people. Now the reality is uh, that our culture also often looks to sex for salvation. You can kind of see sex as salvation as a means to it, but in some unhealthy ways, right? So as Elijah and I grew older, uh, we grew up into a pornified culture, right? one in which sex was used to sell everything from used car, you know, from car ads to clothing, uh, from Netflix dramas to the Spotify playlist, uh, from presidential scandals to celebrity gossip, from the availability of Tinder swipes for a quick one-night stand, and the ubiquity of online videos for quick self-gratification. And so we grow up, and we have, we have kind of grown up in this culture where often we are looking to sex for salvation, to be saved from loneliness, to find fulfillment, uh, to kind of find something that we can define our lives by as meaningful, significant, as feeling wanted. But in this process, 
it's really a reduced vision of sex. We've kind of reduced it to just this raw physical reality, nothing more. Uh, I, I found it interesting the way a kid put it who was interviewed by Rolling Stone. He says, uh, sex has simply become just one piece of body touching another piece of body, just as existentially meaningless as kissing. And what we find is that we've lost the mystery. When we've reduced sex to nothing more, we forgot what it was designed to point us to, God, we've lost the mystery. And I think God invites us to become almost like me and Elijah, to be, become kids again, to have our imagination sparked, that there's something mysterious uh, that we're invited to begin searching out and looking for and to dive deeper into exploring the mystery of who God is, this profound mystery that he's designed for us to reveal his heart of union, for union with us. Another note here, uh, man, the, I think the best way that sex is practiced, then it's designed to reflect the God who has made it, God who's invested it with a significance. And so uh, God is faithful, and therefore uh, we should be faithful to our spouse, to our partner. I think this is one of the reasons why adultery is so tragic, is that adultery uh, is unfaithfulness to our spouse, and it shatters the image, the icon of a God who is faithful to his bride. We also serve a God who is committed to us, who is unabashedly uh, committed to us and enters into covenant with us. And I think this is one of the reasons that uh, premarital sex or cohabitation uh, can be such an issue is that it violates the image of a God who says, no, I'm going to commit to you before I enter into union with you. And we're going to be in this for the long haul, for life, ever. It's designed to speak to and reflect God's heartbeat for his world. Another note here is if you're single here this morning, you could be hearing this and going, well, this, this either doesn't apply to me or uh, whatever. And no, like if you're single this morning, this is for you as well, right? Like that you can have the reality without the sign, right? Without the signpost. Like Paul was single as he's writing this. And Paul still sees this as immensely valuable going, this is the gospel. Like, like ultimately, I don't need the sign on this level because I've got the union with Christ on this level. Jesus was single, Paul was single, you're in good company, right? <laughs> Jesus is both the great bachelor and the glorious groom, right? Like Jesus gives up sexual union on the horizontal level in order to give his life for this union with us on the vertical level, right? And so the deeper reality here that this is designed to point to is that you and I, we were made for intimacy. We were made for union. We were made for the indwelling presence and power of God. Okay, well, how? How does sex display uh, the salvation that the gospel brings? One helpful lens I suggest we can look at this through is the lens of generosity and hospitality. Generosity and hospitality. Let me explain what I mean. What is generosity? Generosity uh, is giving of yourself, right? It's giving your time, your energy, your money, your resource, whatever. But at the deepest level, a generosity is a giving of yourself. And uh, particularly in the kind of male side of the equation in, in union and in bodily union, uh, what deeper form of giving of oneself is there than uh, in, in this union, right? The giving of your very presence, your very self. 
We think about hospitality. Well, what is hospitality? Hospitality is uh, making a welcoming space to receive the life of the other. And uh, often we think of that like the home, the intimacy of one's dwelling place. But if we think of sexual union, and particularly kind of on the, like the, the role of the female side of the equation, like what more intimate uh, hospitality than welcoming uh, the, the other, like not only into uh, your home, but into the sanctuary of your very self. And so there is a giving and a receiving, a generosity and hospitality embodied in this union. And at one kind of big level, uh, husbands and wives both give and both receive to one another. There's a mutual self-giving. But at kind of this uh, core level, kind of conjugal union at, at that level, um, that on the classical terms, it would be called the active and the passive side. So on the active side, kind of the male role is this, this giving of oneself in the union. And the passive side would be kind of the female role of this receiving of the self of their spouse. And the Bible uses this language as well. It's interesting. Uh, one of the dominant Old Testament phrases uh, for sex is the phrase, uh, he went into her. Now, often to our modern ears, that sounds a little, oh, you're a little weird, right? So we try and soften it. And we change it to, uh, you know, he made love to her or they slept together or whatever, um, which is fine. But the Bible is less prudish about this union than we often are. It doesn't necessarily have trouble kind of using language that's more explicit. And that language recognizes that there's kind of this uh, male side of the equation, this female side of the equation of, of he being the one that goes into and she being the one that receives into herself. So sexual union is designed to be this picture of the gospel. And I think we see that in Christ the groom and the global historic church as his bride, which Christ and his bride, where Christ enters into the life of his people. And he, uh, he brings in, he enters in, and he impregnates us with the seed of his word, with the power of his presence, his spirit. And as that take root, takes root in us as his people, he brings new life into the world through us. It's an image and a picture of the gospel. Okay, well, I also think this helps explain why rape and why prostitution are so tragic. It violates the image. It distorts the icon, the, the, the window that God has made. So if you think about rape, uh, on one side of the equation, it takes something that was designed for generosity, for self-giving, and it makes it about self-taking, taking for oneself. Right? It, barges, you know, it barges into the, the place uninvited. It breaks down the door and ransacks the home and takes what wants for itself. Burglary. And on the hospitality end, with, if we think of prostitution, that uh, it takes what was designed for hospitality and it becomes, instead of a, it welcomes the guest, but it charges admission, right? like for a fee. It turns the sanctuary into a space to be rented, a transit station for someone on their way to the next stop. And for some of us, we may be coming in this morning with baggage, with wounds, and the, and the beauty is that Christ's grace is big enough for all of us, whatever we've got to bring. Uh, and, but the, so the point is not so much, hey, is, any, is anyone better or worse or whatever? The point, is, though, is going that like this image, these are ways the image gets distorted and fragmented. And Jesus is inviting us as his people into a display that speaks more to his heartbeat for union, that's committed, that's faithful, uh, and that displays the glory of his gospel. Okay, well, we hear that rape and prostitution might sound like more extreme uh, 
you know, more extreme angles, but I think there's also lesser inversions, kind of more subtle ways that, that, these, that God's design can become inverted. So on a, maybe a, a more subtle angle, and this can often happen in marriage, um, that, that with generosity, the self-giving can become self-gratification. Like, I'm using the other as a means to the end, objectifying them to fulfill my own wishes and desires. And on that side, uh, I'm just going to go out on a limb, and I think guys tend to struggle more with this one, right? Uh, That often it's guys that can kind of use women as a means, not universally, but generally often use women as a means to an end, um, to self-gratification, fulfill their own desires. And so a pro tip for the husbands in the room, slow down, right? Like, it's not a race, The goal is not to prove you're like a Maserati, zero to 60 in 4.2 seconds, you know? Like, just because you can summit 10 steps up the trail doesn't mean she can't too, so slow down, right? Now, we're called to, Jesus, when Jesus calls us to be a servant and that it's better to give than to receive, this applies in the bedroom as much as anywhere. Now, on the other side of the equation, we think of hospitality, right? A more subtle inversion here can become becoming unwelcoming, uninviting, uh, that uh, no longer wanting or willing to, no longer willing to receive the life of the other. And I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that, uh, generally speaking, not universally, but generally, uh, wives can struggle more with this one, right? Uh, I've done a lot of marital counseling over the years, and it's usually not the guy who's going, man, she just wants sex too much. Like, <laughs> I'm tired. I have a headache. Just leave me alone. You know, like, <laughs> and I'd suggest that it's often when kids come along, these pressures can intensify because you're both, you know, you're, you're working, you're running through the day, you're tired, and finally get the munchies down to bed, it just be exhausting. And yeah, I think there's something here that uh, there's the beauty of this picture of, like, covenant renewal for husbands and wives to come back together again. There's something bonding and uniting. And clarification here, nuance, right? Like, we're talking about marriage. Uh, Women, you should never let a guy pressure you into showing this kind of hospitality, right? Like, like this is for the context of marriage. If he liked it, then he should have put a ring on it, right? <laughs> right? Like, the context here is covenant committed faithfulness. Yet, yet, and, and even within marriage, it's never okay for the guy to coerce or force, him, force you into sex, right? Like, that's not okay. But the context here is going that within marriage, within commitment, within covenant, surround, you know, by before God, like, that there is a generosity and a hospitality that God has designed us for, a mutual self-giving that bears witness to the display of his gospel. We think about that covenant renewal and coming back together as bonding and uniting. I think this is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 5, he says, uh, do not deprive each other uh, of sex. He's talking about sex. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, then come together again. He's going, there's something significant and powerful when we uh, come back to this bodily union and it's in, in the bigger context of uh, this union of life. We live together under the same roof. We raise our kids together. We've got a home together. Like the ideal God's vision is that it would be life together. And at the center of this comprehensive kind of life together is this bodily union together as one flesh. All right. Well, if we zoom back out big picture, I think Paul's showing us that this is grounded in the story of the pursuing God. Of the God who comes after us. If we could put the verse back up on screen. 
And the beginning here, he says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. You'll notice the quote marks around that. It's because Paul is quoting Genesis 2. This is the story of Adam and Eve, and uh, God creating Adam. Adam goes to, he puts Adam to sleep, and he forms Eve from his side, and they wake up, and they celebrate, and they, they join together, they become one flesh, and it's given as kind of the basis for marriage. For this reason, a man and one will come together and become one flesh. And what's interesting to me is that Paul doesn't just use the one flesh part to talk about Christ, so he uses the whole thing. So how did Christ leave his father and mother be joined with his bride. Well, we see in the incarnation that God, that Jesus left his father's throne. He left his father's throne above and he took on flesh and he entered into our sickness and our shame, our destruction. He, he entered into the fullness of life with us to be with us. And how did Jesus leave his mother? You see, ultimately this crucifixion as Christ is on the cross, that Mary, the prophecy came true. Mary was told earlier in Luke 2 that uh, that one day like a sword would pierce her own soul too. This happens in the death of her son. And it's at the cross that Jesus tells his disciple John, hey, behold your, your mother, and mother, behold your son, basically giving him responsibility to care for her. And so this picture of Jesus leaving his father's throne and entering with us into the grave, even with this loss to his mother, it's a display of the gospel. Jesus left his father and mother be united with his bride. And so far so that he entered into the grave. He joined with us in death to be united with our condition and in union there to bring to us his life that we might be raised together with him and dwell with him forever. Christ and his church. The union of salvation. The whole story points to Jesus. I love uh, Augustine, the early church father. He said, even the, uh, you think of Adam and Eve in that story, he said, even the creation of, of Eve, he saw as a prophetic foreshadowing of the cross. Where in the garden, God puts Adam, his son, to sleep. And he uh, pulls flesh and bone from his side and forms for him there a bride. So that when they awake, they see each other and celebrate life together. Similarly, at the cross, is the cross, God puts his son to sleep. As the spear pierces his side and the flesh and the water, the, the blood and the water come out, that from the flesh and from the blood of Christ, God forms a bride for his son. In his resurrection as he awakes, we as the bride of Christ encounter the resurrected Christ and are drawn into union with him as our Lord. I think this uh, is why when we see the extent that Christ came to pursue us and to be with us, I think it, it illuminates why uh, in cultures around the world we're kind of drawn to this theme of like the groom pursuing the bride, right? Like um, generally speaking, like there's this theme where the, the extent to which he's willing to go to win her affection, to lay down his life for her, to, uh, to, to give of himself so that they might be together, and it's not saying that uh, the girl can't ever propose or whatnot. You know, we see there's exceptions to every norm. Uh, in the book of Ruth, Ruth uh, pops the question with Boaz, right? So it's not to say there aren't exceptions, but say generally speaking, there's something in our heart that's drawn to this theme of the groom, the guy who goes and lays down his life to win the affection of his bride. 
I think the reason we're drawn to that theme on a horizontal level is because it, it displays this cosmic story of the God who has come in Christ and laid down his life to win our affection as his bride. We were made for this pursuit, this pursuing God. I think this also kind of raises the question, what does it mean to receive Jesus? Let's talk about that a bit, receiving Jesus. Because when we hear that phrase, receiving Jesus, it's, it's become so common it can almost be cliche, right? Like, have you received Jesus into your heart? And yet I think there's something really powerful going on here. And if we come back to this language of union, like, it's not even just receiving Christ into your heart. Like, as the bride, there's a sense that we receive Christ into our, your gut, right? Like, and, which, in, from the Hebrew worldview, was like the deepest, most kind of uh, intimate, like, where your, your desires, kind of your gut instincts, all that are being reshaped and reformed by the indwelling presence of Christ. That Christ comes for us as his people to receive him. And it's worth also recognizing here that um, when we talk about the bride in this picture, uh, it's, a, it's a corporate collective image, not an individual image, right? So uh, we are the bride. It's, it's not that I am the bride or you are the bride, right? Like, it's we, the global historic church, this picture that Christ has laid down his life in order to enter into union with us as his people and to bring new life into the world through us, together with him. And I think this becomes a really interesting way to, it becomes a picture of grace, picture of grace. And an interesting way to look at some of the, you know, some people struggle with um, this challenge of how does grace work? Like, did I choose God or did God choose me? Did, did God save me or did I choose God? Kind of like, you know, did I jump in the swimming pool or did God push me in, right? And, uh, but I think this image of union, of one flesh union can actually help. Because I think we often have kind of a mechanistic versus an organic image when we ask this question, right? So let's say mechanistic image be something like we're driving a car. There's a car. And the question is like, well, is God in the driver's seat or am I in the driver's seat? You, because only one person can be in the driver's seat, right? There's only one person can be driving. But if we think of this image uh, uh, of one flesh union, you go, well, did he sleep with her or did she sleep with him? Yes, right? Like both, both are true, and both are true, and both people are involved yet in different ways. If we go back to that active kind of passive imagery distinction, that at kind of a core uh, deep level in conjugal union, like Christ is giving himself to us. And yet at this broader level, we participate. So while we as the bride, uh, while we have kind of the uh, receiving role, it's receiving, yet it's participatory. That we have kind of the passive side of the equation, and yet we're not inert, right? Like it's participatory. And so two dangers historically that have happened in the grace conversation, one kind of danger we might be able to call like uh, the, the just lay there and take it view, right? Which is kind of like we are just lethargic observers watching from the outside as this thing is happening to us. But the reality of God's grace is that God's indwelling presence, it does not annihilate your agency, it activates your agency. God's indwelling presence liberates our affections, our desires from the destructive power of sin, and it frees our personhood to now live for God. God's indwelling presence activates our agency. And we might think on the, the other side, of the equation, the other danger of the grace conversation has been kind of, we might call like the, you got to go become the groom in our imagery, right? Like going, well, God's out there waiting and you got to go find him, you got to go pursue him, you got to work up your effort, try and get his attention, you got to go out and win God's affection by showing how much you care, or how much you're willing to do for him. And when you finally do, then yes, maybe he'll come and be with you. And going, no, 
God has initiated with us. God has come for us. God has left his father and mother to pursue a bride and to be united with us forever. And so the reality is that the work of God within us frees us to work with the God who is for us. And in our union with Christ as his bride, we work with Christ as he works in us. It's participatory, and it's beautiful. It's relational. It's this picture of us with God forever. And while at one core deep level, it's Christ giving himself to us and us receiving his life, at another broader level, it's a mutual self-giving of us giving to the Christ who's given so much to us. Life with him forever. So I think the invitation this morning, you know, as we, as we get ready to come to worship here in a minute, like, one thing I kind of want to hit is, is, is in defense of romantic worship music, right? Because some people uh, I've heard, well, you know, kind of, I have this one friend once, you could man, sometimes worship songs, you know, they just sound like Jesus is your boyfriend music, you know? <laughs> like where we sort of took a pop ballad and just replaced all the pronouns with Jesus. And, and, and I was like, well, okay, what's, what's your problem with that? What's your issue? And he's like, dude, it feels almost like sacrilegious, like God is too transcendent. Like we're, you know, we're, we're missing out on the, the, the sovereignty, the transcendent, the bigness of God. My pushback was like, okay, yeah, I, I get it. I do think, obviously, God's transcendence and sovereignty, it's all huge. It's, it's centrally important. And yet the reality is, yeah, Jesus isn't our boyfriend, but Jesus is our husband. Because the global historical bride of Christ, he is the groom who has come to be bound in union with us. And there is a scandal of intimacy to the gospel. That the almighty transcendent creator that God has come in Christ and taken on our flesh and borne our suffering and shame in order to be bound in union with him and raise us up with him forever. And that should liberate our hearts with affection and adoration and praise. Men and women declaring the grace together of the God who has become bound in union with us. There's a proper place for intimacy devotion and affection in our language with God, our worship of God. So as we come this morning to the bread and the wine of communion, we come, this invitation is to union with Christ. That the cosmic story of the Gospels is this cosmic story of a God who has come for union with us in Christ. That the horizontal level, sexual union on the horizontal level, has been designed as like a catalyst, as something to bounce off of and transcend up into the mysteries of God, like a trampoline. Let that sink in for me. <laughs> the horizontal is designed to point us to the vertical. And so for some of us this morning, I think the conviction may be that some of us have been looking to sex for salvation rather than looking to the salvation that sex points to. If you're here today, you're kind of going, man, there's a conviction growing that there are some unhealthy ways I have been approaching either my desire for sex or my practice for sex, what I'm looking to it to, to fulfill me or meet certain things in me or the, the ways that I've been using it or looking after it. I think the invitation this morning is to confess and to lay that down, that Jesus has something better for you. And that, that deeper desire to know that you are wanted to experience that intimacy, that union, that power. It's available from Jesus and the power of his spirit. So for some of us, the question is, are there things that we need to lay down in the ways that we've been approaching 
the ways that we've been approaching sex are things that we need to confess and bring before God to experience his healing, his life with us. For others of us, when it comes to our life with God, the question I want to ask is, have you been living out of duty or out of desire? Out of obligation or affection? Out of kind of a moralism or out of a captivated heart that adores the majesty of who Christ is and enters into union with him as a part of his people? I think the invitation for us on that that area this morning is that we would come and that God, we would live from the heart. We would gaze upon the glory and the beauty and the greatness of Christ and we would be captivated by him as his people and live together with him. As we come to communion, to uh, the body and blood, to the bread and the wine, the very name itself, communion, it's co-communion. It literally means union with. We come to receive Christ given for us to be bound in union with him with us. So let's come to morning to, this morning to Christ our King. We would experience both the generosity and the hospitality of the gospel and that in our lives, uh, our lives together, and particularly that as a community who loves Jesus, the way that we approach sex would actually put on display the glory of God, the mystery of his gospel, and the generosity and the hospitality that Christ has designed for us. Join me in prayer. Jesus, thank you that you have come for us, God, to not only to be with us, Lord, but to form us as your people, to dwell within us, God, to give of us uh, the seed of your word and the power of your presence in your church, God, as your bride. God, that you would bring new life into the world through us. God, I pray this morning, just uh, we want to acknowledge and bring before you uh, any unhealthy ways that we have been approaching sex, God, things that may lead to destruction or uh, be, God, things that violate the beauty of the image that you've made, God, and what it's designed to point to. God, we bring those before you and ask Holy Spirit that you would guide us into the better things that you have for us. God, we also... Just pray, God, for those of us who have been living more out of duty than out of desire, more out of obligation than affection, Holy Spirit, captivate us again with the glory and the grandeur of Jesus and the beauty of the gospel. Jesus, thank you that you have come so relentlessly to be with us, that you left your father and mother in that, in that sense, God, you, you came to actually take on our condition and be bound in union with us, that we might live and dwell with you forever. To your glory that we pray. Amen.